hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Carly here. Registration is now open for our September 24th and 25th podcast virtual retreat, and we could not be more excited to welcome you back. Our last retreat was exceptional. We made some incredible memories. So please come join us again with industry experts like cultural critic, author, poet, and book development expert, Lee Stein. Authors like international bestseller, Jane Green. Self-publishing superstars like Kirsten Moglin. Reese Witherspoon pick, Andrea Bartz. And agents like myself. We will see you all September 24th and 25th. You can register now at theshitaboutwriting.com. That's theshitaboutwriting.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. And today we're kicking it back old school for those of you who miss the format that we originally started with, which is where Carly and Cece read and critiqued the same two query letters, sometimes agreeing, sometimes really disagreeing, which can be fun. So let's dive right in. Carly, will you read us that first query letter? 
Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I love the podcast and would be forever grateful for your feedback on my query letter and first pages. I'm writing to seek representation for my 92,000-word coming-of-age novel, That Girl America. The novel takes place in a fictional California suburban city in the early 2000s and has an ethnically diverse cast of characters. America Rossi needs to write her senior year goals for The Assignment, a four-year-long project of goal-setting and letters of reflection. But after three years of unexpected heartbreak, traumatizing sexual experiences, and uncovering some harsh societal truths, she is stuck. She started high school as an innocent ex-tomboy looking to change her image. She made the cheer squad barely, and she was on the hunt for ways to build her confidence. Her disadvantage was growing up in a bubble that her strict Italian-born parents placed her in. Her advantages were her two quick-witted, ride-or-die best friends, Chloe and Randy, and the group of guy friends they merged with after dating, breaking up, and realizing that even friendship can be complicated. Chloe is an insecure boy-crazy perfectionist who has deep emotional wounds inflicted by her mother. Randy is the sexy, cool-without-effort type, but she has a big secret. On the weekend before the start of senior year, while America is consumed by negative thoughts and bad memories of the three relationships that are responsible for most of her dread, her youngest sister suggests she read the freshman, sophomore, and junior letters that were already completed for the assignment. She hesitates, but decides to open the envelopes, taking the reader and herself back to the start of high school. But will reading these letters remind her of how far she's come, or will they send her into an even darker place? That Girl America is a story about being thrown into the dark side of teenage life unprepared. It's about bad influence, young love, sex, racism, manipulation, abuse, harsh reality, overcoming trauma, and forever friendship. It's taking time to look back on where you've been to understand where you want to go. It is the first in a duology. The second covers the character's senior year. It has a similar style and voice to The Way I Used to Be by Amber Smith. I live in California with my husband and twin sons. I spent a decade educating teen girls on body image, self-esteem, and sexual health under the nonprofit that I started my senior year of college. This organization was inspired by my own unfortunate teenage experiences, as well as the stories of girls I coached in cheerleading during my early 20s. Now I hope to positively impact girls and women through my writing. Thank you so much for your consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Chelsea Prince. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, so why don't you kick us off and let us know what you think of that query letter, and then we'll go across to Cece. Okay. All right. Let me let me think where to start today. Okay. I'm going to start with the coming of age bit. So just as a market thing, right? You know, I think about where do things belong? Where do they belong in a bookstore? So coming of age is typically more of an adult category, right? Because it's kind of an adult looking back at this coming of age. Coming of age is usually designated from you know, sometimes puberty, teenage years, early 20s, but it's with a more like of an adult lens looking back, or a bit of distance or a bit of, you know, omnipotent narration. So there's that's kind of a bit more of the framework here for coming of age. So I was a bit curious to see whether this really was coming of age. And then later on, you have a comp the way I used to be by Amber Smith, which I believe is why if I'm not mistaken. So I don't think this is coming of age. I actually think this is YA. So that's just a bit of a, a framework look for you there. A couple other things here. So titles, I always suggest that we do those in all caps, just so it really stands out on the page. And we only have the one comp. I would probably get some more comps and put them up at the top. You know, depending on how dark this is, like I think Euphoria, the TV show is a good comp. That's a very dark show. I could only watch like five episodes myself because I found it so incredibly dark, but it's very popular. So that might be a comp depending on how dark, you know, your book kind of ends up going. And another thing I had a question about was this whole time period. So the early two 
2000s. So sometimes I worry when somebody sets things in early 2000s that we are trying to absolve ourselves from the internet. We're trying to absolve ourselves from cell phones and technology and texting and some of the more modern ways of communication. So that's it's not a red flag for me. It's a bit of a yellow flag. Like, why this time period? Because if your age group is... YA readers, they don't know anything about the early 2000s other than like it's cool now on TikTok because it's like Y2K fashion is is the cool TikTok fashion now with the low rise jeans coming back, which, you know, they can all just like disappear into a burning flame. If, if, if it was up to me, I would never see low rise jeans again. So I'm just not sure if this is like a nostalgia thing or if we're just trying to avoid the Internet. So those are my thoughts on that. So the next thing is the usually we have a bit of a hook at the top. And this is a very kind of straightforward sentence. The novel takes place on a fictional California suburban city in the early 2000s, has an ethnically diverse cast of characters. This is a very flat sentence. This is a very factual sentence. And I I just think we could do a lot more here. You know, I always talk about this kind of being real estate, right? Like, holy moly, we could do so much more with this, with this patch of land here. It's so important at the top. And it's just too factual for me I think I would like it just a bit more the hook or a little bit more more the comps you know a little bit a little bit more happening here okay and now into the middle of the query here so I think overall what my issue is is what is at stake if she doesn't complete this project so this whole thing is based around this project right and she has to complete this project so I'm not really getting a like what happens if she doesn't complete the project kind of feeling it just seems like this is a vehicle to explore a lot of feelings, which just worries me that that's that we're just not going to have a lot of plot happening here. And I would, there, there's some things that I would definitely keep. I don't think we need the paragraph that starts, she started high school as an innocent ex tomboy. So this just feels like character sketches for me. So I just think we don't need that. I think we keep the paragraph on the weekend before the start of senior year. That's good. The part that I think should be way up higher in the query letter is this part. It's the whole, the story about being thrown into the dark side of teenage life, you know, the comps, all of that sort of stuff. But but ultimately, I do think this is YA, and I want to know what the stakes are here. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, we're going to move across to you. I'm echoing Carly's comments. This is going to be one of those queries where we agree. To add to that, I would not make this a duology. I think the the impulse to really just have more space to develop the character's journey, right? So the first novel being the last three years, and then the second novel being her senior year. And so I, I very much empathize with it, but I don't think it's in your best interest because that means that essentially we'll have to look at two books to figure out her whole arc since this does begin at the start of her senior year. So I would just make this one book. And I realize that's a lot of work for you, <laughs> you the writer. But but yeah, that's that's what I think would best serve the story. And what I always tell people when they are facing a a note that would require a lot of, of work is remember, this is not about preserving your time. The goal here is not to be efficient or protective of your time. The goal here is to achieve the very best story possible. And oftentimes that does mean a lot of work. So I believe in you. I think you can do it. I would definitely take all the notes Carly just mentioned because I I agree with all of them. And then my second note, in addition to all those, is yeah, just really make sure to elevate the major dramatic question. Right now, the major dramatic question is, will reading the letters remind her of how far she's come or will they send her into an even darker place? That is too interior. You want to make sure that it's it's something that a camera could capture. You want to make sure that it's a journey that's not just internal. And don't get me wrong, I love interiority, but it can't just be that. So yeah, those are my notes. 
Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? All right. So we start off with our main character. She's in her bed and she hears some noises and she can't kind of remember what was going on. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I'm having a sleepover with my best friends. She kind of looks down below. I think it's a bunk bed situation. And she kind of explains her two best friends, a little bit about them and kind of a little bit of the backstory. Then we get into the whole, you know, the assignment, the sister kind of asking, have you done the assignment? And they're kind of talking about that. And they get into all of those details about kind of the interaction between her and her sister. And that's it. Okay, so just from your description of it, I'm a bit worried that it's a bit exposition heavy for a beginning. So was that the case? Let us know. I would confirm I would confirm that suspicion. Definitely, definitely a lot of telling here. I'm finding, you know, there's there's sections where, you know, we're explaining things about teenagers and what's normal and, you know, how they're at war with their emotions, which we could show that so much better with dialogue or like blowing up with your parents instead of saying like, yeah, being a teenager is emotional. So yeah, so I definitely agree with all of that. My other note just kind of comes back to what I was saying in the query letter was which my my suspicions on that were correct is that this totally feels like YA to me. You know, the voice, we have a first person voice that's, you know, tends to be more sign of, of YA. It's just, yeah, didn't feel like it was really targeting an adult audience here. That's a big thing. And I think we also need to establish, which I like we get to, to the, the assignment right away, but we need to establish again, what is at stake if she doesn't complete it? Or what goes wrong with the assignment? Like, I'm almost kind of thinking of like, is this like a burn book moment where the assignment book, like her assignment, you know, notebook gets taken by somebody else. And it's like, oh, all of the secrets are revealed. Or, you know, there's this whole like conspiracy at school where like everybody's assignments, you know, book get taken or if it's computers gets hacked or something like that so anyway i just think there's like a lot of drama that could potentially happen with these assignments and we're just really scratching the surface on the potential here again because i think it's just really interior about exploring these personal feelings and then i remembered at the end here that we were in the year 2000 the only thing that reminded me of it was she talks about Tiger Beat magazine. She says her sister moves the pack of lip gloss, shuffles through an array of old Tiger Beat magazines. So even in the year 2000, like Tiger Beats would be really old, like even old for that. So like would a modern teen even know what Tiger Beat magazines are? I'm just worried again, we're like slipping into that nostalgia factor for adults when really I think this is a book for modern teens because I think this is a YA book. But Cece, what do you think? I thought that was a really interesting note. I I don't read a lot of YA, so yes, probably like showing as opposed to telling is 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 the right way to go. For me, since I, I do agree this is a YA in terms of the writing, but for me, since I'm so big on like I love reading about characters' inner lives, my notes were all directed towards why aren't you giving me any specifics? So we don't think in generics, we think in specifics. So for example, there's literally a line where she reads, my parents sheltering me my whole life literally prepared me for nothing, end quote. Like, that is not how a teenager would think. A teenager, would, and that's not how a human would think. Like, a human would think, you know, something like the fact that I'm the only kid in the school that still has an 8 p.m. curfew doesn't help. Like, you would think the specific thing that is bothering you, not to mean that that one thing is the only thing. I understand it's just an indication of a larger pattern, but we get that. We, the reader, Right. So I don't, like another example, instead of saying, quote, I dress in clothes that hide what I hate and show what I don't. No, you don't. When I'm thinking, oh, I dress in clothes to hide my legs because I hate my legs, I think my legs because that's my insecurity, right? Like I don't, 
you 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 specify in your head the thing that you that that bothers you. You specify in your head the thing that you want. You futurize. You that is simply how human beings think. And and I suspect, and I could be wrong, but I suspect that the reason why we're not getting specifics on anything, including her goals of the past years, because she's thinking, yeah, the past year sucked, and she doesn't tell us why it sucked, even though we hear it like three times. And, you know, none of my goals worked out. We don't hear what any of her goals were or any of her friends' goals were, even though, like, they're talking about it. And teens compare. I'm saying teens, but, like, humans compare. I suspect the reason is because the author doesn't want to give anything away. So she she wants to wait until we dive back into the letters, dive back into those years, and find out why they were so bad. Although, according to her sister, they weren't all that bad. And I get it. Again, I get I get the impulse to not reveal, but it's just aggravating because I'm not getting I'm not getting anything to keep me in the story. And then the other note I have is there's you know when 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 this, she's talking to her sister, there's a reference to her sister being blonde, and the protagonist thinks to herself, quote, "That blonde hair is the most obvious difference between us. No one else in our family is blonde. There aren't many Italians with blonde hair." End quote. That is just not accurate. There are lots and lots of Italians with blonde hair. Millions, in fact. Italy borders with Switzerland. So the north of Italy is filled with people with blonde hair and blue eyes. Also in other parts of the country. I guess I'm you know, mentioning the north because of the... It's even more common there. And so my question is, is it intentional that the protagonist doesn't know about her own heritage? Is it intentional that she's leaning into a stereotype? Because if so, then perhaps that could actually tie into the note about her parents sheltering her. Maybe she could mention how they didn't let her learn about her own culture. A lot of immigrant parents do this. They want their kids to fit in so badly that it comes from a beautiful place. But they just go, oh, no, you're just one of them. Like, forget, forget it, forget it, forget it, right? And they practice an unintentional form of erasure. So if that's if that's the intention, make sure to frame it like that. Because I don't want it to look like you, the author, are leaning into a stereotype. Because that would just look bad. So, yeah, those are my notes. Thank you, Cece. You know, as a writer, I can understand that we do have this desire to hold on to things and go, oh, I'm going to reveal them later because it's going to be better later. But you need to think of it as like a poker tournament. You don't sit down in a poker tournament and say, I'm going to play, you know, crappy hands up front so that later I can really play my good hands. Because if you're not winning up front, you're not going to be there for the middle of the tournament or the end of the tournament. So as a writer, as a poker player, you have got to be playing the best damn hand you can every step of the way to win your reader's attention so that they are there in the middle and that they are there at the end. So something to think about there. Alrighty, so Cece, let's go to that second query letter. Dear Cece, thank you for the labor of love that is your podcast and for reading my query. Complete at 70,000 words, Regina is the first of a two-book series that fictionalizes the true story of Regina Turcher Perez, the leader of the movement that ignited Mexico in 1968. It's an international family story with a strong mother-daughter component and unique settings that revolutionizes the cultural conversation and leans towards the magical. First chronicled by Antonio Velasco Piña, in 1987, Regina Dos Octubre Nos Olvida is one of the top Mexican bestsellers of all time, a story that has never been told in English. Little Regina grows up in Tibet, studying alongside the 14th Dalai Lama. 
When China invades, Regina flees and her parents are killed in an ambush. Despite her grief, Regina must use her spiritual gifts to help refugees cross the Himalayas. Orphaned and desolate, Regina goes into hiding to continue training with her mentor. Regina's spiritual skills blossom. She can control the weather, communicate with animals and mountains. Regina's mission? To return to Mexico before her 20th birthday to ignite a spiritual awakening in the Americas. When Chinese soldiers send her to a prison camp, Regina must find a way back to Mexico to fulfill her destiny. I am Mexican, Guatemalan, and Kickapoo, and I feel like my past careers prepared me to write this book. Translation taught me about language, healing taught me about people, my mystical practice brought me into contact with the spirits that whisper in my ear. Every day I rise before dawn to work on Regina Book 2 until my five-year-old daughter wakes up. I can be reached at Redacted and Redacted. Sincerely, Magali. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, so what was your take on that? I really enjoyed the, the idea that you're bringing this story that you know, like you mentioned, it's never been told in English before, and now we're going to find out about it. So that really piqued my curiosity. I wonder, would you frame it as magical realism as opposed to just saying lean towards the magical? Is that how you'd characterize it? So if so, I would I would write ma magical realism. I think that would stand out in a query letter. Remember that agents, they, you know, we review queries in batches. And so some buzzwords, some specific words might really help. I would also just love more clarity on is this a fresh spin on a story or are you retelling it through a different angle? Because I don't, I don't want it to seem like it's a straight up translation of something, especially because that's not what you're saying it is. Like if it is a straight up translation, do tell us and make that super clear. But I'm getting the sense that it's original, right? So if so, how, like what makes it original? What, what is the fresh take here? And I totally get by the way that the part of the originality is it's never been told in English. I just mean, what is the originality beyond that? Because otherwise it would just make it a translation. I would also really like more specificity in terms of what is the major dramatic question? Like, she must return to Mexico before her 20th birthday to ignite a spiritual awakening. That seems both too broad and too internal of a quest? Is that intentional? Like, why 20th birthday? Is there a prophecy that she must do it before she turns 20? And how old is she now, right? So we have a sense of the ticking time tension. I think especially when you're looking at a beloved text from another country, I'm thinking of the stories that I grew up with and how much I love them and how much I'm attached to them. I think I would get really excited to tell them in English, but it would still be my job to frame it in a way that would make it so enticing to a reader that has no emotional attachment to it. Because the reader doesn't, because the reader does not have any context. So imagine that you're talking to someone who's never heard of Cinderella before, or who's never heard of, I'm just saying Cinderella, but it could be anything. It would not be enough to say, oh yeah, so it's the story of this girl who wants to marry this prince. Because you're like, well, that just seems very broad and very generic. What makes, what makes, it, what makes it special? What makes her journey so pressing? And like, I totally get, by the way, this is not a fairy tale. I totally get that it's based on, on real life events. But I, I just wasn't feeling the major dramatic question developed and tightened in the way that it has to be to really, really make me curious. So I would just work on that. 
I love that you mentioned that your mystical practice brought you into contact with the spirits that whisper in your ear. Like it's such a beautiful line that made me so happy. I really hope your daughter wakes up really, really late. Like I hope she wakes up at noon because that will mean you have lots of time to write, but probably not. Probably, let's face it, probably kids wake up really early. So thank you for this query letter. Carly, I'm curious to hear what you think. All right. Yes, I, I completely agree. I feel like I was so interested in what was happening here. And yet I walked away from this query letter not knowing anything about what was happening. I just, I don't know. I just think this is so incredibly interesting. This whole like revolution, you know, this cultural moment, like, you know, this is such an important figure. And I just felt like this query kind of assumed that I knew a lot more about it than I did. And I wish I knew more about it, you know, and I think I just wanted this query letter to kind of tell me more about the the historical relevance of this figure because she sounds so interesting. And we also didn't have any comps here, which I think could have helped in this moment of like, are there kind of, you know, revolutionary figures, you know, books about revolutionary figures, we could, you know, use this comp or something about, you know, the the kind of moment here, the the leader of the movement. And I actually Googled this, like, what is the movement in, in 1968? And it is called the movement of 1968. So like, I was, I, again, I had to kind of go out and do more research. And I just really wish that this query letter had a bit more information for me. Because yeah, it, it just seems so incredibly interesting. But that just makes it feel so wide open. And I really, yeah, wanted to know why this movement, you know, why this moment, why this character, why now? Like, why do we need this book now? Because we have to think about also the modern reader. Why is the modern reader going to pick this up? And so it's not that, you know, there has to be an allegory for modern life, but just like, what? why do we need this book now? I think that was kind of the element that I was missing. Like, why instead of reading a translation, again, it says it's never been told in English, why do we need a fictionalized story about this? And I think that's, those were kind of the, the pieces of the puzzle I was trying to understand a little bit more. I agree with Cece, you know, the question about like, is this more mythological or, you know, is this more allegorical? I would just like to know a little bit more about the framework of that. And I think Cece mentioned this already, but the whole two books, right? Like we need to focus on one book. I think we're having back-to-back query letters about duologies today, you know, really focusing on your first book, right? There is no, there's not really a, a two book deal situation for most people. It is a one book deal and you focus on making this book the best success that it could possibly be. And then, you know, you get to write future books and so on and so forth. But really, you know, I just don't see um, a publisher investing in, in a duology at this stage. It would really depend on this book itself. So I kind of, I I've, I would just encourage this person to really work on this individual story. But yeah, I, I feel like I, I just want to know so much more. This is really interesting. So, so give me more. <laughs> Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? The story starts with Satali, who's standing on the banks of a holy river, and she's watching women bow in prayer, and she thinks about how it's similar to the way she bows in prayer when she's back in Mexico, back home in Mexico, and she's going to Mass. And she watches a young woman carry a baby, And, you know, her heart aches because she thinks, you know, she's been married for 17 years and she's never become pregnant despite daily prayers and visits to doctors that can't seem to find anything wrong with her. Her husband arrives and through dialogue, we learn that when he was younger, he would come to this temple and pray. And, you know, she eventually she makes this this joke like, oh, if you had stayed back in India, you could have married an Indian woman and you could have had many babies. And he says, you know, of course, babies would have been wonderful, but, you know, all I care about is you. Then a llama appears. We have a line break. A llama appears and he gives her a prophecy. He says that there was a vision and that she's going to become pregnant and 
the baby is going to be a reincarnation of a spiritually advanced soul very important baby the llama tells her that they're going to have to move to tibet because tibet is the only place in the world where a child's special gifts can be trained the llama also mentions he'd be happy to host them at the monastery and gives them special papers to emigrate and you know meanwhile she's thinking like her husband's a citizen of the world but what about her? She can't just uproot her life. And then Richard looks at her and says, imagine being allowed to enter the forbidden country where the deepest teachings of Buddhism are held in secrecy. So clearly he's very much into this whole moving to Tibet thing, but she's a little bit more hesitant and obviously not so sure that she can trust that she will finally have a baby, despite the prophecy. Great, Cece. Thank you. Okay, so what was your take on those opening pages? And then we'll get Carly's take. So I have two notes. First, I don't think you need a scene to establish that they can't have kids and they have a happy marriage, and then a scene with the llama telling her about the prophecy. It's dragging the pace because essentially each scene is only doing one thing. So I would compress the two scenes in one. Inner life can tell us about her inability to conceive. It's, it's telling us now anyway. And then speaking of inner life, her inner life needs to be either more skeptical and dismissive of the prophecy, like she's just not going to believe it, she just will not allow herself to even go there. Or if she does believe the prophecy, then it has to be more grounded in specifics about what she'd miss back home, including the life that she thought her baby would have. Like, let's say she does believe the prophecy and she's now convinced she's going to get pregnant. Anyone who wants to have a kid imagines a specific life for their child and for themselves as a new parent. We do not think in generics. We think in specifics. And so she would mourn that she would have a spike of but that means that you know my, my baby will never get to be with his grandparents or my baby will never you know get to whatever that is and then my second note is the dialogue needs work right now it's very info dumpy like consider the line what a rare sight he must be a llama from tibet the secretive country hidden up in the himalayas i don't think that people that the person would say that it sounds too forced it sounds like you're trying to tell us what Tibet is, which I get. And it's also not leaving anything unsaid. When Satali and Richard are talking, there's nothing about her inner life that reveals anything beyond anything that she's telling him. And I get that they have a happy marriage and she doesn't go around having huge secrets from him, but everyone has a private inner life that they don't share, even if it's out of politeness or something else. And so when you have dialogue between two people, we are inside one of those person's head. And so... That is the perspective we need to get, and we need to have information that the other person they're talking to doesn't have, because that's what makes us connect to a protagonist. Yeah, so those are my notes, and I'm super curious to hear what Carly thinks. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. I I really loved the exposition paragraphs, the writing, like so many beautiful, beautiful lines and word choice. I don't know. I just, I really loved, really loved the first page. And then we move into dialogue. And this is where I stumbled because, you know, the way that I describe it is sometimes I feel like dialogue is really leading, meaning like the author is leading us where they want us to go, you know, the, the reader. So I really felt like either this is meant to be entirely allegorical. 
so that is why we are kind of explaining everything again. So is this book an allegory or is this more of a a novel, you know, and and that those are the things that I, I'm not sure this book has figured out yet. If it if it wants to be more of a novel, then I think the dialogue has to be completely reimagined because I, I just don't feel like it's hitting the mark. And if it wants to be more of an allegory, I as an agent, I'm like, I don't know what the market is for an allegory. So I'm just not seeing it. So I'm leaning more towards let's just work on CC's points, all of CC's great critiques. And yeah, let, let's work on the dialogue to make this feel like we're, we're understanding more what's at stake if they move to another country. Ultimately, I just found the dialogue incredibly leading because it's clear that the author, the writer wants us to go somewhere with them and it feels like they're like holding our hand and trying to pull us in the direction that they want us to go when really I just think we have to let story do the job let the storytelling do the job as opposed to you know trying to hold our hand through through the whole thing so that was that was my main issue you know is this an allegory you know or why can't this be a bit more narrative driven a bit more plot driven those are the things that I weren't really clear on but I really really love the exposition on the first page I think it's such it's such beautiful writing Wonderful. Thank you. So for our listeners, for those of you who are Kofi supporters, remember that if you're monthly supporters, you'll have access to all four of these critiques. If you're a once-off supporter, you'll have access to two of these critiques. Right. So that's it for today's episode. Let's go to today's guest. My latest novel, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, releases on the 23rd of August and I'm super excited to be doing a few tour stops over August to November in order to promote it. I'll be visiting Atlanta, Chicago, Washington DC, Milwaukee and Boston, as well as doing a few events in and around Toronto. If you live near any of these cities, I'd love to get to meet you at one of the events. Please check my tour schedule on BiancaMarae.com for details. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. 
They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi there, it's Cece here. I have a very special guest today. Jesse Stevens is a Sydney-based writer and podcaster with a master's degree in history and gender studies. She's the assistant head of content at Mamma Mia and co-host of the podcast Mamma Mia Out Loud. She also hosts Mamma Mia's True Crime Conversations and Book Club podcasts, where she's had the pleasure of interviewing some of her favorite authors. Jessie is also the author of Heartsick, which is her first book, and I have it with me now. I know no one can see me, but please join me in welcoming Jesse Stevens. Jesse, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. I am really excited to chat with you for many reasons. First and foremost, because of your great book. But you know, selfishly, as the host of this, one of the hosts, sorry, I'm going to start over. Selfishly, as a co-host of this podcast, I'm excited to chat with you because your path to publishing was a little different, and we'll get to that. But my first question is, your book, Heartsick, is nonfiction. So you sold it on proposal. Mm -hmm. And I feel that our listeners who write nonfiction will obviously benefit from this interview, but our fiction listeners will also benefit because in many ways, your book reads like a novel. So my first question to you is, what was the most challenging part of writing a proposal? And what was the easiest? And what element do you think stood out the most to publishers? Because it was obviously successful. I'm holding the book now. So 
That is such a good question. I think that the hardest part about writing the proposal was conveying the tone that I was trying to adopt and the way in which it would be written. I think that was very difficult for me to explain, which was that it would be non-fiction as a genre. It would be based on long-form interviews with real people, but it would not be written as interviews. I wouldn't be inserting myself into most of the chapters in the way that often is the case with, with non-fiction. And so what I found handy was to put in my proposal as many references to who my influences would be as possible. So going, it is blah meets blah. So for example, I was saying it's nonfiction. The big one that I referenced was Lisa Tadeo's Three Women, because for me, I'd had this idea for years and years, but I did not know how this would be structured until I read that book. And I went, this works. There are things I want to do really differently, but this is very clever. So I referenced that. That was obviously an enormously successful book, which helped me. What was easy in some ways in the proposal, I suppose, was that I believed very strongly in my idea and in the strength of it and the in the originality of it. So to be able to say, I can't see, obviously, this is what Lisa Tadeo did for desire for female desire I want to do something similar but in space of heartbreak and do it with men and women and same-sex attraction and across age groups and in that way I think that the idea was different enough to catch the attention of an editor so I, I knew that I needed to emphasize that upon submitting the proposal and because I have a background in media I have an understanding that in media, we call it, will they click on it? Will they, you know, digital, will will they read it? Is it thumb-stopping content? In this, I was like, well, the number one thing that, you know, the editor, the publisher cares about is will this sell? And how can I convince them it will? Which was, it will sit on a shelf beside Lisa Tadeo. It will appeal to fiction readers who might like Sally Rooney, Marion Keys, Leanne Moriarty. It will draw on the features of even some crime writers I like in terms of pace and cliffhangers and love Sally Hepworth and so drew on some of her devices and I assured them I was well read and I knew what I was going to do in terms of on a bookshelf why am I walking into a bookshop and buying this that makes so much sense and I love that you touched on your background because my next question is how much do you feel like having a platform having your background having your credentials mattered I think it does matter and I find it, I have a lot of people reach out to me and ask me for advice in the industry and I have to be, I feel as though I have to be really transparent and say it is different when you work in media. With that said, a lot of people I work with had been offered book deals, had had people because of what they wrote, because they had a special area, they'd had people approach them and say, we think you could write a book that would be an extension of your work, an extension of your brand. I didn't want this book to be an extension of my brand, whatever that means. I wanted to be a career author. And so I, in a way, I think I was getting my, like my ego was hurt that I was never asked. But then I felt like I had to wait until the right book idea came to me. I then had the opportunity to reach out to publishers. I'm not going to pretend that having a platform didn't 
make a difference. But I was also very much like, I want this to be a very, very good book. And the reason I think the platform made a difference was because I had an Instagram following. It wasn't too substantial at the time. It's grown since then. But I was also on podcasts. And so they knew that I had listeners who were somewhat engaged in what I was doing. And I worked for a women's website that could support the book, whether that was in excerpts or or whatever it was. So they knew that I was going to sell a few copies, really, regardless of whether or not I pulled it off. But in saying that, you know, the deal that I got was very, wasn't a particularly big deal. It wasn't a particularly exciting deal, but I got one and I, you know, delivered on it and found new readers, which which was a big goal for me. That is exactly how I think I would frame it to someone as well from an agent's perspective. Like, of course it matters, but it has so much to do with the value of the book as well. I, you know, the only thing that you said that made, that gave me pause and only because of a not so recent now New York Times article is when you say, you know, a few copies would be sold regardless of whether I delivered. I don't, like, I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. Actually, that's not true. Sometimes that happens. But, you know, there's, there was a really great article that I encourage everyone to pull up. The title was Millions of Followers for Book Sales. It's Unreliable, which essentially, you know, talks about Billie Eilish's book. There was another book too that it mentioned. I'm so glad you brought this up. I think about this all the time. Yes. Piers Morgan. That was the other example I was thinking of. He has like 1.8 million followers at the time anyway. And he sold like 5,000 copies of of the book. Like 1.8 million followers. It's not too shabby. (laughs) It, It does not convert. And I've actually spoken to so many publishers about this in Australia because this idea of book as brand extension, especially by influencers, I don't think works because I think the number one thing, you would know this better than me, but this is what I always tell people, is that the number one thing that sells books, even in 2022, is word of mouth. That is why I buy a book. That is why I'm always recommending books. If people are picking up your book and they're not finishing it, it ends there. It doesn't have that kind of exponential growth of recommending it, of forcing it on people. To me, that's still such a good marketing the best marketing strategy is to write a really good book that people love and relate with and desperately want to talk about I think yeah it's it's a really good point about any sort of celebrity because I've seen people do that and I've picked it up and gone this is an awful thing to say but this person can't write or this person has nothing to say a book deal was just and maybe another way for them to make a bit of money and I'm very cynical about that and so to me it was just like this book in terms of how I valued it was I want it to be a good book first because can I trust a publisher? I remember thinking this when I met with people, don't find a publisher who will just churn your book out because they think that because you work for a women's media organization, X amount of people will just buy it because they've heard your name. Don't do that. It won't work and it won't be satisfying for either of you. So I found a publisher who I felt would challenge me and make it into the best book it could be because there were definitely publishers that wanted it out quick and wanted to make quick money that wouldn't even be worth it because it wouldn't 
yeah, it would stop very quickly. It might have a spike in the first week and then never sell another copy. I mean, there's so many variables, right? Like this is just one of those conversations that we could spend like five hours on and barely scratch the surface. I, I do think that this commitment to the quality of the book speaks volumes about your own professionalism, but also about the longevity of any successful project because discoverability matters. Like if you have a billboard on Times Square, oh my gosh, that is definitely going to convert into some sales. Do not get me wrong. But at the same time, if people are finishing your book and they're finding it, eh, then then you don't have that sort of organic growth that is so important because we might live in a world filled with social media and all these cool modern things, but we, we still are very essentially people who want to connect. And so when my best friend tells me, you have got to read this book, there is nothing, there is no recommendation higher than that because she knows me, she knows my taste. And it's so exciting to sit down with your friend and chat about a book you both enjoyed and also exciting to chat about a book that, you know, maybe you enjoyed for different reasons, or maybe one of you had strong opinions that wasn't quite on the, I enjoyed it camp. I mean, this is why we have book clubs, right? This is why book clubs are so incredible. But one thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned going to publishers. Did you try to get an agent before going to publishers or were you just like, nope, just skip that going directly to publishers? Cause I, I have those contacts. I have those, I have that option. What did you do? So I had sort of through work, I had three-ish connections that I I reached out to. It did not even cross my mind to do an agent. And in some ways, I regret that because I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. To me, getting the deal, getting a book deal was more about having an externally determined deadline that I would have to meet. That's what I needed. But my identical twin sister is currently where I was a few years ago and she's got this book idea and I'm like, get an agent. And we're like working on her finding an agent because I think in a lot of ways it's better. But I think I learned that you also don't need one. You can also, it, it was great as well to just go off your gut and go, I really trust this person and I feel like they're going to help me make a great book. Since that, I now have an agent who has helped me enormously, but I do not think it's critical necessarily. There are so many paths to publication, right? And there's no such thing as the right path for everyone. So it's really just about, you know, what made sense for you at a time. I am super biased. I feel like, you know, agents, like we pay for ourselves so many times over that I'm very pro-agent. But, you know, especially with nonfiction, I I, I get it like 100%. So, okay, you mentioned you do have an agent now. So how did that happen? Did he find you? Did you find him? What was the situation? Please tell me he found you. I want listeners to have at least one frame of reference of an agent chasing an author and not the other way around. (laughs) So actually, I think at one stage, it was right before my book came out and I had a few questions and sort of didn't know what I was doing. And I reached out to this particular agent. She got back to me. We had a meeting and it was, it was good. I, I really, really got along with her, but we, there wasn't a deal signed or anything like that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just kind of see how things go. And then the book came out in Australia. It came out in the UK. It sold the international rights and was a success beyond what anyone, especially me, expected. And then I got an email and I was like, yes. Um, and Yay! She- <laughs> an email! <laughs> an email from her lovely name. And it popped up and we met again and we had a really good 
discussion and she chatted to me about what I wanted the next few years to look like and what I enjoyed or didn't enjoy about the last process. And, you know, within a week we'd, we'd signed a contract. And one thing that I really like about having an agent is I don't have to be the bad guy. I'm not very good at being the bad guy. And so things like the book cover, the title, things I feel extremely strongly about, but when it's you up against a publisher, it's one versus one. But when you have an agent come in, firstly, you have fresh eyes because I might be wrong. I'm not an expert. I am happy to be told, hey, they're actually right. But I need someone advocating for me. And that's what I uh, love. And oh my goodness, talk about earning their commission. Like it was just, it's the funniest. This has been the story of my career, but like not knowing how much you're worth. And then someone comes in and goes, oh, by the way, this is the deal. And you're like, what? So this has been... I now have a second book that I'm about halfway through writing and having her organize that and negotiate it was a dream. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Again, I am super biased, but for me, it all comes down to one salient point. The publisher will look after what is best for your book. A good publisher will look out for what is best for your book. An agent will look out for what's best for you, the author. And it might seem like these two things would be perfectly aligned. It's not always the case because the publisher is looking out for one book within an ecosystem of books they have. So that, there's, there's that difference. But okay, I want to go back to, to the conversation you had with your agent, a conversation that you guys gelled well and then in a week you had signed. And that's so exciting. What question did she ask you that surprised you, if any? And what question were you like, oh, I thought she was going to ask me this, this question, and she didn't. Exactly what you said about she is there to advocate and look out for the author. So that was, I suppose my publisher had sort of asked this, but she asked it more specifically, which was, what do you want out of this? Do you want to be a career author? And what she gave me was really straightforward advice, which I respond really well to. I needed someone in that situation to go, the tables have turned, you came in with no power with the first book, and now you've got some power. This is the power you have, and this is what I'd do. And it was brilliant advice. I knew that she had my best interests at heart, and her advice was to show your scope. So I think that sometimes when you've written a book that has gone well, you go, okay, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to just do the same thing again, and then nothing can go wrong. And she was trying to say, no, you're better than that. Take a risk you've written nonfiction. I know that deep down you want to write fiction. Give that a go back yourself. And she helped me over the next, because with the first one, when I sent in a proposal, I'd written that myself. My sister had read it. Like I had no advice from industry professionals. My proposal that I went forward with my second book went through five or six rounds of edits with her, where she just went, this needs to be better. Your first chapter's not right. Change this. And every bit of feedback, every round of feedback I can get will make for a better book. I want more people on my team. And that's what's been brilliant and exciting about this process. I feel safer in a lot of ways that something isn't going to go wrong. That makes so much sense. And good on you for doing that. the hard work of revisions. I know that editing a proposal or a manuscript is a lot of work for agents. It's a lot of work for editors. But the true a lot of work is what the author does, right? Like the author has to do the hard work of 
of making those changes. And that can often be so time consuming. And it's it's truly a testament to your long-term ambition and strategic thinking that you will do it. Because I know so many authors are just like, you know what, like, if this is fine, this is good enough. And, and, and you can tell the people who are going to really make it in this industry, because they are, it's not about being a perfectionist, because that's also not what it is. But they are just serious about making sure that this can be as good as it possibly can. Because editing is foundational work. So you can only make something 10% better as a good editor, which means that if you don't already come in with something that's absolutely amazing, that extra 10% difference won't lead to an overall result that will make the cut. So it really is about that. So when you got your first deal, first deal with a publisher, didn't have an agent yet, and I'm not asking for specifics, but I want to talk money, specifically impressions of money, not about numbers, rather about what you thought, because this is an industry where everyone thinks, everyone has an idea, everyone has a number in their head. Did you, when you got your first offer, did you go A, oh my gosh, this is so much less than what I thought that they would offer me. Or B, oh my gosh, this is so much more. Or C, something else. I am the classic. I knew that I was a first-time author and that I didn't have a lot of bargaining power, but I must say it was not a lot of money. And it was certainly not. I think some people think it's going to be enough to quit your job. No, it would not have been enough to quit my job for a month. Like, were you expecting it to be? I think it's more about like, what was your expectation? What was your impression of the offer you got versus the, and I don't mean expectation in an entitled way. I just mean like, what were you thinking? I think my expectation was, was low because I just could not believe that someone would pay me to write a book. So it was this sense of like, I, they are taking, I kept thinking about it in terms of risk. They are taking such a risk by signing me, by giving me anything, this really sort of basic advance. And I I semi knew what career authors, because it's sort of something we talk about, which I think is actually quite important for people to talk about the industry because you don't know what you're worth. And so to talk to people was really good where they said, you know what, for my first book, that's actually exactly what I got. And they said to me, if it is a good book, the money you'll make will be off royalties. So trust it, just take the advance and write a good book. And whether it'll be the second or the third book, there might be more money there. But I was very aware. I went in with absolutely no ego and I went, you have proved to precisely zero people in the world that you know how to write a book. So they're taking a risk here. Just do your best and see what happens. That's such a great attitude. I I feel like I'm going to reference this episode to everyone. Did you ever consider self-publishing and why wasn't it for you? I didn't. And mostly it was because, because I work in media, I get sent a lot of self-published books and I really don't have any, I don't think I I sort of have any opinions about them when they cross my, my desk. But what I will say is that I know the difference that an editor makes. And when I handed in my manuscript and you first get your like first round kind of structural edits and they were fantastic and great and every single one was spot on and I was so grateful, then I got the line edits. And they were a whole other level of like from tiny words you use too much to, I expected it would be a lot of spelling mistakes. Spelling mistakes were the least of my issues. It was the fact that I used a word 45 times or my descriptions in some bits were were not right. Or yeah, that there were lots of things I never would have picked up. The expertise that comes with a publishing house is, is so handy. 
and to have the team, whether it's like marketing, oh, all of that, I just found outstanding. In saying that, I think it depends on why you are writing a book. Because I know that for some people who have specific specialist interests and want to write a book about, I know someone who who wrote a book about Parkinson's and their own experience, and it's just a stunning book. They self-published that and it totally made sense. Whereas for me, I don't think it would have made sense. How much did it change from your first proposal, your first idea to the final product? And, you know, I think this might be a good time for you to give our listeners like a, like a two-liner on what your book is about. So the book is, and this is how I pitched it. I said it would be three stories of the true stories about the way in which heartbreak upends a life. So we would follow these people into their relationships. The driving question of the book would be what happened? What is it that catastrophically blew up their relationship? And that explored, you know, infidelity, rejection, like all all these different themes. I knew going into it exactly what sorts of stories I was looking for, what sorts of people I was looking for, themes, all of that. So in that way, I was quite rigid. It did change and it did evolve a lot um, throughout the process. The only word I can think to describe it is sophisticated. It just became so much more sophisticated with the help of people who do this for a living and knew so much more than I did. So the heart of the book was the same. The idea was the same. I've gone back and read the proposal and gone, oh, I was so naive. But, you know, that could have been the blurb. Absolutely. And it was the same same idea. Say more about the, oh, I was so naive. What were you naive about? It was just, you know, when you first have an idea and it doesn't have a level of like, whether it's intellectual rigor or depth or discovery, something happens when you put your head down for a year and you read I kept a reading list all year of every single time I heard a book mentioned, referenced, I saw a podcast mentioned, referenced a movie within that theme, I read it and I consumed it. That was one thing I was like very sure about doing. I was not going to write this book and not be entirely immersed in that kind of culture and literature. So that in and of itself meant there was so much more depth to the idea. It was just really simple what I proposed. And what came out was something, and this was actually advice I got from a publisher, was you need to come up with like new knowledge around this. Like what did you discover? What's someone going to get to the end and go, I had never thought about heartbreak that way. She described it as what would your heartbreak TED talk be about? And that was this like kind of guiding light in the back of my head. Like what are you contributing? And that made it a whole different book in a lot of ways. That is great advice. Mm. Question. Anna, Patrick, and Claire. Not asking you to tell me which one, but do you have a favorite? <laughs> You're laughing. Don't ha- I don't. <laughs> don't lie. Favorite. We all have favorites. <laughs> Jesse has a favorite. I, I'm sure. I loved, I loved interviewing all three. I think that in terms of who I spoke to the most and probably developed the most intimate relationship with, it would be Anna because Anna had never told anyone else in her whole life this story. And so to be her confidant and like when we got on the phone, I knew how therapeutic it was for her and how important it was for me. And yeah, the depth of that relationship was something pretty special. Okay. I love that you kind of told me which one your favorite was. I'm totally (laughs) kidding. I know know that's not what you answered, but I was just asking if there was one. Can you complete the sentence for me? After a breakup, the best revenge is? introspection 
which is a strange thing to say, but I'm going to say it. I love it. That was really original. Introspection. (laughs) That sounds amazing. That also sounds like the best healing path too, which is definitely something I got from your book. Yeah. I think that, you know, as a society, we don't take grief, the grief of a heartbreak as seriously as we take other griefs. And it's not it's not in our best interest to underestimate what, what heartbreak can do to a person because it's, it's real and we've all been there. Why not, given your, your ability to, given the fact that you have a flair for writing sentences and paragraphs and pages that feel like fiction, why not write a novel um, as your debut? Why did you want it to be nonfiction? This is something you, you kind of touch on on the prologue, but I, I wanted to ask you to elaborate on and to obviously share with our listeners who haven't picked up your book yet. But um, why not? Why not make it fiction? There were two reasons. The first, which I talk about in the prologue, is that when you are reading stories about love and these people falling in love and then these incredible heartbreaks that you think, oh my God, that cannot be true. When you have a voice in the back of your head telling you, no, these are real people, that adds power to the novel and to the story, to to the book and to the story. And I thought that was really important to go, oh my goodness, those three people were real. The second thing was that this felt more like my background. So because I've interviewed and I write, whether it's features or you know, interviews, and I've done that for years, I felt like I had some right to give that a go. And I think it was about guts. I think writing fiction takes real guts because you have to believe that your idea is good enough. And I've only just got there now with writing the second. I think I needed to write this and play with, I've I've had people explain it to me, like if you want to be a career author and if you want to write lots, then look at it as a body of work. Your first book doesn't have to and will never be every single thing you want to say. It won't be, it won't encapsulate everything you can do and it's not meant to. So write that book and then with the next one, that's a different project. And so for that reason, I think it it made the most sense for it to be nonfiction and to have real people guiding the plot, but for me to add colour and construct their stories in such a way that it read like fiction. It reads like fiction for various reasons. I think the most noticeable reason for me, someone who dissects books and dissects them, I have done this forever for many, many years, is that you build tension. You build tension with every Mm. chapter. Like you kept me Mm. guessing. You kept me forming theories and wondering what would happen to these people. And to you too, because that's something that I was curious about. Like I wanted to know about your life. And there is a little bit of that towards Mm. towards the end but I just wanted to know like like what is going to happen (laughs) in a way that I typically feel invested in in fiction and I think that's because of the storytelling it's the way we frame things when we write fiction we are much more comfortable framing things in a way that not that it's intentionally or or in a bad way manipulative but it is manipulative in the proper sense of the word it's it's manipulation in the same way that an alchemy is manipulation the same way that you know medicine is manipulation is getting a whole bunch of elements and putting things together what i'm trying to ask in a very long-winded way is so glad to hear that you're writing another book can you tell us about that or is it top secret for now i absolutely can i will just say that i'm so glad you say that because one thing that was guiding that first book that I always tell people who are writing is it has never been more difficult to get people's attention and keep it. If you write a book, it has to keep people's attention and be interesting on every single page because if people put it down, they 
might not pick it up again. There's Netflix, there's TikTok, there's a lot to do. So that's got to be your- You're saying my line. I always tell people, (laughs) you're competing with Netflix. Why are they going to read your book? They have Netflix. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think it makes us better. It makes us work harder. This novel is about, for anyone who has read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, it is a book about a woman who has, I suppose you would call it sort of an old-fashioned nervous breakdown mental health crisis in her sort of late 20s. My book is almost like a reframing of the bell jar in terms of in 2022, first chapter is a woman at 30 in a psychiatric ward. Then what are the things that would lead her there? What are the things that make women socially, culturally, what are all the forces at play that might make her mad? And how can we look at them in in a story so from everything to sort of what seems trivial whether it's like dating or social media to like really serious stuff about class and work and you know pressures to have children all that kind of stuff it's exploring that which again probably could be done in nonfiction. but I wanted to write a novel and I have found it incredible incredibly freeing and exciting you're a novelist, Jesse. I know you're more than that too, but you're definitely a novelist. I read your book and I was like, if she tells me she's not, not working on a novel next, I'm going to have to shake her. <laughs> um, that is okay. what my agent said. <laughs> really? See, this is what I'm talking about. Agents add value. <laughs> um, okay. Last question. Can you please recommend us a book? It can be a book you're excited to read, but haven't started yet, or it can be a book you mm-hmm. just finished and loved, or it could be an all-time favorite, anything you prefer. All I do is read books. I actually, when I got on this call, the first thing I noticed about you was that in the background, you have Magpie by Elizabeth Day. And I have it right here. It's next to me as well, different cover. I love oh, it. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved the tension I loved the suspense. I thought it was brilliant. The other one, if I can throw one more in, which I think has come out in the US now, has a different title in the US to what it has in Australia. Here it's called Dirt Town. There it's called Dirt Creek. And it is like an Australian murder mystery by Hayley Scrivener. And it's in the same vein as Jane Harper. So if you love Jane Harper and you love even like Dervla McTiernan and a few kind of crime crime writers, Dirt Creek. Oh my God. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, now my TBR is about to get longer and I love it. You will never hear (laughs) me complain about that. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a treat. We really look forward to maybe reading your next book and having you again, if you're open to it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you know, anyone who's listening, who is facing this, I just, I feel you. I listened to all these podcasts when I was writing the first and I continue to And it is bloody hard, but it is rewarding and exciting. So you're in in the right place. Oh, it's so worth it. And you know what? The success or how many copies you sell or whether you get a big advance, that's not what's worth it. The best day, which I know sounds cliche, was when I submitted the manuscript. And I went, I'm somewhat proud of this. I think that that the satisfaction that you get is wonderful. And you imagine that having people tell you that they like it is going to fill the void that we all have and it's nice but it won't fill it any more than knowing you did a good job 
I think that's been probably the biggest surprise. I love that so much. And (laughs) our listeners can't see you because this is just audio, but you are like glowing as you say that. So this is is really special. Thank you again, Jesse. This was such a treat. I hope that we'll get to see each other again. Same. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.